Welcome to Inside JMS, the stories behind the people who work at the Hank Greenspun School of Journalism and Media Studies. I'm Kevin Stoker. I'm the director of the school. Today, my colleague and cohort, Dave Norris. Glad to be here as always, my friend. And I, we have with us Todd Witcher, or as we know him, T.R. Witcher. yes. And uh, T.R., we are just happy to have you with us. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Well, well, let's start out. We always try to start out with a question that's from left field, okay? Okay, okay, I'm ready. Okay. What do you got? Why is a guy who is a journalist, who teaches writing and everything else, what has he got to do with architecture? I just, uh-huh. I'm trying to figure that out. Is it, do you're trying to structure your life or your stories in such a way that people will buy them? Or what's going on with this architecture thing? Here's the thing. I grew up outside of Chicago. And uh, when I was a kid, my dad worked for Sears. So I worked in the Sears Tower, then the tallest building in the world. And we used to uh, take the train into the city and there was something about this isn't anything I was consciously thinking of it when I was a kid, but I, looking back, you take the train into the city and you can just see the whole development of American cities, suburbs, older suburbs, city neighborhoods, and then you come into this big swaggering skyline, Chicago, and you come into the train station. And I think maybe that's where it got started. I was always interested in place and buildings and you know the built environment Uh, and when I got out of college and I took my first uh, real journalism job in Denver uh, and we were in uh, a neighborhood called Lower Downtown which is an old warehouse district that's been uh, renovated there's a train station there that's been renovated in recent years and I just found myself wandering around the city camera in hand you know looking at travel books, looking at architecture books. Uh, There's a great writer named Jan Morris uh, who writes about place in a really evocative way. And I think all of those things just gradually kind of got me interested in writing about, thinking about architecture, design, cities, etc. That's that's really interesting. Um, Now, you you went to Missouri for your undergrad, right? I did. I did. And you got an undergrad in journalism. I did. And and a uh, undergraduate degree in English too. But yeah, yeah, I got a degree from oh, the, from the J two school. Two degrees. Yeah. And then you went to Chicago. No, I went to I grew up in Chicago. Or I grew up outside of Chicago. You got to be careful with Chicago folks. You can't, you know. You uh, grew up there. Yeah. I went to uh out of school. I went to Houston for a summer uh in the alt press as an intern and then I went to Denver for 6 years. And then I went to Kansas City. Uh, so this was back in the day when the Alt Press, you know, your alternative weekly newspaper. Actually, we still we still have uh, a pretty decent weekly here in Las Vegas. But this was in in an era pre-social media where these this the Alt Press really felt like a viable, strong sort of challenger to kind of mainstream, you know, your your, your metropolitan daily newspaper. Uh, and the esprit de corps was really that was a wonderful time. Uh, you know, there was a small staff, but there was a staff. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a staff of six or seven or eight writers, and you just got turned loose on all sorts of stories every week. And you knew that before everyone was on their phones, 
like people were looking for a copy of your publication, you know, every Thursday, uh, free, you know, as weeklies are. And so all driven by classified ads. This was before Craigslist. Right. And uh, and just, you know, display advertising. I mean, this was this was a great it was a great little window that that I think we all thought. No, this will last forever. <laughs> Little did we know that that wasn't the case. So you know what? What, what years were this? This is, you know, it's kind of interesting. You're talking about the heyday of the all press. Yeah, I was. I was there in. Uh, this was '95 uh, to the early 2000s. So I mean, this was. I was in college. I started college before email kind of kicked in. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when I, you know, got on my first job I and mean, we had computers, the internet was very rudimentary. There was there was a thing called email, but it was but nothing like what we've got, you know, no broadband, no wireless. Right. So right. still looking for sources in a phone book. I mean, it was still it was kind of like the end of that kind of or, or that era of relatively low tech. Was there something that drew you to the alt press? And I ask that because there is a big difference between, I mean, we're speaking to people ideally who understand journalism, but there's a huge difference between working at a daily and working at a weekly and especially an alternative weekly. What, what drew you to that? Oh, that that's, that's easy. Like the alt press, that was where... That was where the people who wanted to be writers went. You know, that was the, I say this with a bit of tongue in cheek, but but not much. Uh, that was where folks who had ambitions to write something big and grand and, you know, with voice and style and all of that stuff. Uh, you went there and the, the Metropolitan Dailies, like if you wanted to be like a hardcore, like kneecapping, sorry, reporter... <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and you just thrived in that sort of deadline scoop kind of environment you went to. I mean, as a print journalist, you went to the dailies. Right. If you wanted to sort of, if you saw yourself as a little bit more like, no, I do long form, really in-depth kind of, whether that's somewhat investigative uh, or feature-oriented, you sort of drifted towards the, the alt press. Uh, I mean, this was a moment where it felt like that was, it was a viable, you know, it didn't feel like, uh, it didn't feel like uh, uh, leftovers. You know, the mm-hmm. old press felt like a legitimate kind of uh, uh, calling uh, that you could get into. And certainly, I mean, you could still make the leap if you wanted to at some point later in your career, you could get your feet wet in the alt press. And if you wanted to move on to, you know, uh, quote unquote, more mainstream uh, journalism you easily could so that was that was the thrill like you know it was a little bit you know we were a little edgier you could use bad language in your stories you could have a little bit more you know you could have a little bit more fun and you could it was a little bit more freewheeling well it was alternative as it was well. al- it and, was alternative and, and there there was this ethos in a way to that the alternative press and, and very much so very much so. i mean i think proudly that we would We'd have meetings every. We'd have story meetings every week, and and my boss, uh, who's kind of a, an institution in Denver, Patty Calhoun, who ran uh, Westward, it was a paper I worked for. Uh, like there were two rules. You came into story meetings with your story ideas. There were two rules, actually three rules: color, conflict, 
and something the dailies wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And so that was always an exciting, you know, uh, and we were all, you know, you'd certainly you'd go have a beer or whatever with, with your with your opposite numbers, you know, at the post of the Rocky Mountain News uh, on Fridays. But that was a fun kind of, there was an esprit de corps there. Uh, and there was a feeling that like, no, this is, you know, this is a viable, legitimate kind of journalistic enterprise and it's a lot of fun. And, and the staff was very talented and, and the size, I liked the size too, uh, that there weren't a lot of layers of hierarchy. It was just you, your story, your editor, a copy editor, and that was kind of it. There weren't a lot of, you know, uh, I mean, you had to, the stories had to be good, uh, and sitting down to have a long story edited minutely was like that feeling in school where, you know, I mean, it was, it could get nerve wracking. It could get pretty nerve wracking. You know, you thought, oh, I got this, this story, this story's great. And, you know, your editor would sit down, get the pen out, start going through it. And yeah, maybe it's not as great as I thought. And, oh, my gosh, I'm just barely hanging on. And can I <laughs> can we take a break and I get a breath of fresh air? It's getting kind of stuffy in here. But that was just great training. Actually, that's been the best training, really, for the work I do here or for a lot of the work I do here and just evaluating writing. Uh, you learn by sort of really seeing editors kind of work through uh, your stories at a really granular level and you just start to see stuff and pick up stuff and realize oh 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 okay that's cool you know Uh, and they were great you know the best editors were always they saw things in your work that you didn't they made connections in your work or helped you make connections that you that your draft was almost there but wasn't quite there Mm-hmm. You know, it was like it was almost like your draft was kind of like two hands that were just about to shake with each other, and they would make just the tiniest move, take a word out, add a word in, so subtle sometimes that you thought, "Oh, I wrote that," you know. But really, it was them just kind of like subtly, kind of you know, seeing what your story really wanted to be uh, or needed to be, and just making subtle little changes to kind of bring it across the finish line while still making you feel like, oh, still my story. So that was just an invaluable lesson to kind of see editors do that. And and as a editor uh, later on and teacher, you know, you still kind of think about that, you know, how to help folks sort of, here's what the story really wants to be, and you can suggest changes without being heavy-handed about it or without being, you know, I have to put my, you know, imprint on, on this story. Really, it's just like the less you're doing, uh, in a way. You know the that better. that really distinguishes between the editors I hated and the editors I loved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because the the yeah. editors who could still maintain, who could still make the story so much better, while still maintaining your voice and everything else that was important in the story. Yeah, those editors were great. I mean, those editors were 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 the ones you'd really. You know, you you. What's the expression? You'd ride or die with, so to speak. Right, right. Um, well, and you always want you want to write better for them. Yeah, yeah. And the ones who just kind of made changes because you felt like they, like had, they to had to make changes. I'm here. Somebody's paying me. I gotta I gotta do something. Justify my I, my existence, right? Yeah. I, and I and I appreciate that. I mean, you you know, as later becoming an editor, you appreciate that 
that uh, that dilemma, uh, if that's the word, or as a teacher, some you feel like you don't want to give the paper back to the student that that's basically on point. Sometimes because you feel like, well, they're paying me to to do something. To do something, I can't just say, oh, this looks really good, A plus, great job. You feel like oh, I got to find, you know, and so the challenge is to sort of resist that that temptation, you know, to make changes when they need to be made or make suggestions when they need to be, you know, when appropriate. But when things are kind of looking good, just let it, you know, let it roll. I remember not wanting to be an editor. I wanted to just always be a writer. Really? I just valued that moment. But, you know, now later in my career, editing's been kind of what I've had to do. Right. Um, tell me about, though, there came a time when, you, you, I mean, if we're implying that the alt press had its heyday, <laughs> then it also had its, this pay, its uh, it came due, you know, the payday came due or whatever it was. They, right. they came to that moment. Uh, for you, what was the end of that, what was that moment when you all of a sudden said, okay, my future's not here? Well, I, I, uh, I was in Kansas City and I was coming up on 30 and I think... I think a lot of journalists will have a moment where there's some there's some next thing, there's some bigger thing, better thing. Maybe you have a clear idea of what it is. Maybe you don't have a clear idea what it is. Uh, you write the same stories long enough, and you just feel like, hey, I've done, I've learned everything I can learn in this place or this environment. I've written every kind of story uh, that there is to write here. And you just start thinking about, yeah, maybe there's something else out there. Maybe there's something new. Uh, so I left. This is a company I had worked for since, uh, you know, two weeks out of college. I've been with them for eight years. Uh, and it was great. Uh, but I thought, you know, I got to see what else is out there. So put my stuff into storage. Uh, left the weekly paper in Kansas City. Moved to New York uh, because that's, you know... That's what, what you did. That's, that's what, what writers you, do. That's what, that's what writers do at some point. <laughs> and proceeded to mostly starve <laughs> for the next year and a half or so. Uh, but that was a great experience. Uh, and when I was there, uh, there came a, a turning point for me where uh, there was a job that I was looking into or you know interviewing for and – but I was thinking about graduate school, uh, and I was thinking about maybe going on to get a Ph.D. in something. Didn't really know what. Uh, never really found that out. Spoiler alert. Uh, and I had to make a choice. As I was leaving New York, and I, my, my parents had, uh, uh, had retired out here, semi-retired out to Las Vegas. And I thought, well, I'll come out here and just hang out. Uh, and I had this big decision to make, ultimately— there was a big job opportunity or there was a great graduate school opportunity. Uh, and I ultimately decided to take the grad school opportunity. This was at the University of Chicago, right? Yeah, this was at the UFC, uh, which had always been sort of, uh, if I was going to go to one school, that that felt like that would be a lot of fun. And, and it was. It was a great uh, great stimulating experience and what was what was your focus there what was your major my program was in uh it was called a master of arts in humanities 
And so it was kind of set up to allow students to do one of two things. Either A, take a bunch of classes at the university. Uh, I, I almost call it in a way sort of like a fifth year of being an undergrad, kind of. Uh, or B, and so you had a lot of you had a lot of folks like me, writers, creative types, folks who would go on to go into arts nonprofit, arts administrative kind of positions, or you had folks who wanted to get into really highly competitive PhD programs, and they felt they needed that extra. So for them, it was a little more like legitimately like a pre PhD year. You could kind of you could kind of make it go either way. Um, and I was there, and I was studying cities, right? And I was interested. And so all my all my classes were in different disciplines, had something to do with cities, the built environment. And I could never quite get myself down to what I felt like I needed. It was a really specific kind of narrow focus, like, okay, I could be a scholar in X. My mind was still, well, I'm kind of interested in this, I'm kind of interested in this, kind of interested in this, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if I had to do it over again, I might, I might have tried a little harder to find something. Um, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe I wouldn't have, because uh, I don't really regret that I haven't, I didn't go on in graduate studies. I had a really good experience and and learned a lot, met a lot of really cool people, uh, and came out to to Las Vegas. Uh, so, the other answer to your question, I think, is like the the weekly you know, business model still was kind of hanging on. I mean, still is hanging on here. You know, Las Vegas is a little bit special because of the strip. And so you get all of those nightclub ads and you get sort of, there's an advertising base here that I think you don't get in other cities. And so for years here, went back to uh, join the staff of the Las Vegas Weekly, uh, was at Greenspun. Uh, they had a magazine I was an editor, an associate editor with for a little while. Uh, so I had a couple of different stints with, uh, uh, with Las Vegas Weekly as a writer, as an editor. Uh, and so we were still kind of hanging on. You could still kind of, I mean, and, and obviously the weekly still comes out every week. Uh, but there was a, an era here and maybe the late, the late aughts, the early teens, where there was Las Vegas Weekly, there was Vegas 7. City Life. City Life used to be, uh, you know, a lot of the kind of sort of mainstay figures in the uh, in the weekly journalism uh, community here. Uh, you know, Andrew Corrali or Scott Dickensheets. I mean, those, you know, those guys had a connection with City Life. So there was still a feeling that, like, maybe the last gasp of, <laughs> of, of alt-weekly dumb yeah perhaps was here in Las Vegas uh, or one of the, you know, last gasps of it. Uh, But the internet is just, it's just been, I think we're all still trying to figure it out as, as professionals and as educators, you know, how do we prepare students uh, for just such a rapidly changing, uh, you know, media environment? I think that's just an ongoing question. I certainly don't have the answer to (laughs) Well, that's a great segue to maybe talking about what you do as a teacher. So you are a faculty member here in the Hank Greenspun School of Journalism and Media Studies. Tell yeah. us about some of the classes that you teach. Tell us what brought you to teaching. And, you know, maybe just give us a little bit about your philosophy that you take to teaching as well, TR. Yeah. Well, and, and boy. Be sure to back up and also talk about 
because I know you taught in the architecture school and you taught I did. at CSN as well. I did. So I'll, I'll start there uh, briefly. I, I got out of graduate school. I came uh, came out to Las Vegas and uh, was was out of work for, for a minute, uh, but fell into uh, teaching English composition at, uh, at the College of Southern Nevada, which was a lot of fun. I mean, I love writing. Uh, and so... And I love teaching writing, uh, and so that that hasn't that was fifteen years ago or thereabouts. Uh, I still love teaching writing and, and, and storytelling. So CSN kind of got me in the door of just being some kind of teacher, you know, being in front of students, uh, you know, putting together a syllabus, et cetera, et cetera, doing a lecture, grading papers, the whole uh, the whole shebang. Uh, and I enjoyed. I enjoyed the teaching. I enjoyed being up in front of. I didn't have any anxiety, any of that. I was comfortable with that from from day one. I was still continuing to work as a journalist uh, in town, and I befriended uh, a guy named Robert Dorgan who ran the uh, the university's our university's UNLV's downtown design center, which was a a facility that the School of Architecture operated out of the Fifth Street, Fifth Street School. School downtown shout out to the fifth street school it's also where i got married in 2017 so it's so beautiful uh, it's beautiful old mission revival uh grammar school uh built in 1936 uh i went to interview him for a story and he said this was 10 12 years ago and he said hey by the way this was in august he said by the way would you be interested in teaching a class of uh graduate students architecture graduate students teaching them how to write better and he said, "Don't worry about, don't worry about the students. I'll get, I'll get six or seven students in there, uh, and here's what I can pay you. And the the, the pay was nice, uh, and you know, but class starts in like two weeks. <laughs> of course, that's how it works. What do you say? Yeah. And I said, that sounds like a blast. Uh, and that was a great that that began my uh, my relationship with UNLV." Uh, so uh, Robert brought me in, uh, taught that class. We had a great time just sitting around talking about urbanism, cities, architecture, with architects uh, in training, really helping them sort of think about how they could communicate better. Uh, and and that led to me floating around down there as a writing coach, I guess you could say, uh, Gensler, a big architecture studio, a big architecture firm globally, and they have a presence here in Las Vegas. They taught a studio one semester, and I floated around as a kind of, you know, writing coach, writing teacher. I'd say, okay, here, read a couple of these academic, you know, texts, and, and I'll come in and we'll talk about them, and I'll give you some uh, some assignments to, to, to write about. And the way I saw myself there uh, is I would tell them, look, I'm not a trained architect. I'm not a you know, and I'm not a, I'm not an academic. I'm just a guy who you can't BS with whatever it is you're writing. And so, think of me as the person that you have to, the layperson, the intelligent layperson that you're going to deal with in your career as an architect. Uh, who, if you can tell, if you can tell the story of your project, your design, and make it understandable to people like me. Uh, and get us engaged. Forget all of the. I'm not interested in the mumbo jumbo. You you know, or you can sound smarter than you are if you use fancy words. Let's kind of leave all that aside. Just you know, be smart, but give it to me 
straight. Uh, and if you can do that, then this was sort of my sort of pitch to them was that that gives you a leg up because every designer who you're going to compete with in the future for, for jobs, everyone can draw, everyone can design, everyone has really cool ideas. What sets you apart potentially is that you can tell a better story about your design than someone else. So yeah, that's great. So that led to teaching you know, some introductory classes down at the architecture school uh, and then finally coming over to uh, the journalism school. And so all of this, all of that kind of comes together here uh, at JMS. So I teach our uh, storytelling and design course where we're really trying to get students thinking about the intersection of stories and, and design. So visual storytelling, you know, photography, information graphics, graphic design, typography, really uh, thinking visually. And so some of the some of the most interesting challenges in the class are really getting kids to sort of set, to think about do you understand your story well enough so that you could sort of tell part of it without words? Can you find the right photo? Can you find the right graphic or the right table or chart or you know what why don't we think about putting a map here or a timeline or some visual thing that Maybe if a reader had to read all of that information in a big, long chunk of text, their eyes would glaze over and they would they would skim, as many of us do. They would skim past it. And maybe that's really important information. Can we give that information in a different way that makes readers say, oh, not only is this like not boring, this is actually fun. Uh Comic books, we look at comic books and see if there's some lessons that we can sort of gain from, you know, the spatial relationship of, of elements on a comic book page. Uh, so I teach that class, and that lets me leverage some of the, you know, design stuff, architecture school stuff. One thing that architect architecture students do so well that I, I would like us to do at JMS is they do these big, they do their designs, Right, and then at the end of the semester, they have to post all of their drawings and their the, the boards and all of their sort of material up on a wall, and people come by, professionals come by, I come by, uh, other faculty come by, and sort of critique the heck out of it. And it's a really, it's the same. It's it's their equivalent of sitting in with the editor as they get the pen out. It can be merciless. Because they have so many things on their plate. A, can your building stand? You know, just the architectural stuff. I go there and I study and I give comments about the quality of the presentation. You know, the order of the elements that we're seeing on the uh, on on that wall. It's a very similar kind of thing uh, to what we're doing in story and design. So getting them to think about and getting our students to think about how we can tell stories visually and how well you really understand the story that you're trying uh, to tell. Mm -hmm. So I teach that course, and I teach uh, magazine writing, so feature writing, which is just, that's just leveraging, you know, 20 years or however long it's been of just doing that uh, for a living. I still, uh, I still am a practicing journalist, uh, and I, I still contribute not so much these days, uh, but for about a decade, I was a contributor at uh, Civil Engineering, which is a engineering magazine writing about architecture, big civic works projects, big public works projects all over the world. 
Uh, so if someone builds an airport or a museum or a library, university building, hospital, you know, big a subway system, the big sort of infrastructural projects that kind of like make cities run, uh, I wrote about those projects uh, all over the world for about 10 years. And now you're not doing that anymore. You just I'm dialing just have I'm, time. I'm dialing down the full time teaching load, friends. <laughs> That's right. It's a lot of. Uh, uh, I was feeling uh, stretched a little thin. Uh, I still do the occasional story for them, but I was on a pretty, pretty aggressive uh, sort of schedule with them that was difficult to kind of. You know, I wanted to be able to give my best to to everything I was doing. And what, I, what did you learn from that experience? I mean, you're writing for kind of a a different audience there. You're you're writing for engineers, right? And so the challenge, the big challenge there, uh, and what sold me on on me sort of taking the 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 work uh, was at the very beginning. They said, "Look, we don't it has to be a little bit technical, but we really want you writing for." lay the layperson and so you could I wasn't great at I'm not an engineer wasn't great at math uh, I wasn't great at you know understanding the technical stuff at a really profound level I could understand it at a kind of superficial level uh, I couldn't understand it at a really profound level but what I could do was I could ask any engineer you know, if you can explain it to me kind of in English, so to speak, I can find I can find the drama of the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can find that that really was it. And that's sort of how I approach the stories, less in terms of, you know, post tension concrete beams, et cetera, et cetera, and more the deadline. Here's the problem. Here's the here's the drama that you're facing on this project and how do engineers and architects uh, figure out how to surmount those problems. Uh, and so I think that those stories were, were pretty popular with readers because it felt, it felt casual, yeah. you know, it felt smart or at least smart enough, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but it still felt readable. Like you'd want to, you know, it didn't feel like you were reading a, a dry sort of technical manual. Felt like you were reading a story with right. with characters, and the building or the structure itself obviously becomes kind of a character, and you can really sort of celebrate that. Uh, so that's maybe that's that's what I learned is, is sort of how you can kind of dabble into that sort of technical side but still still have a pretty strong footing in just the bare bones of a good dramatic story and that's you know people enjoy reading those and and I think maybe they get something hopefully you know readers got some value out of you know that way of of presenting stories I also wrote for a number of years a, a history column so we would take the history of significant engineering landmarks so the Hoover Dam. I, I didn't actually write about the Hoover Dam, but the those kinds of you know the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, the Suez Canal in Cairo. Uh, I wrote about or uh, the uh, Hagia Sophia Mosque in Istanbul, like buildings that really they legitimately do have rich a really rich history. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Notre Dame burning down a couple of years ago in mm-hmm. Paris 
uh, was an opportunity for us to kind of dive in and you know tell the story of how Notre Dame got there and what they're going to do about it. So those stories were were a lot of fun. One of the things this podcast and our sister podcast with the communication department has been known for is asking a personal question or two. And um, I feel like we have to ask this because you opened the door. So you got married at the Fifth Street School. I did. You got to give us the background. I mean, you could have gotten married. You probably, you understand architecture so well that you could have picked the best venue. But you chose the historic Fifth Street School for a reason. You got to let us know. Thank you for letting me answer this question. My wife will be delighted. Uh, we got engaged and uh, in 2016, and our first thought of venue in Las Vegas. We knew we were going to get married in Las Vegas. Our, we, you know, we're here. Our families are here. Uh, we thought we would go to the Springs Preserve. Uh, so, uh, for those of you who, who might not be familiar, the Springs Preserve is this beautiful kind of campus of museums and educational spaces and gardens uh, that the Southern Nevada Water Authority uh, runs uh, just west of downtown. So built with a lot of sustainable principles. It's a beautiful kind of architectural campus. And it's one place in Las Vegas where you're there. You really don't feel like you're in Las Vegas. You feel like you're in some other kind of place. And we thought, oh, man, this will be this will just be amazing. Uh, I won't bore you with the details of like trying to budget a a wedding. Uh, the Springs Preserve was there were complications there. I'll just say, uh, and we looked around the entire city. We went everywhere from uh, you know uh, golf courses to banquet halls, and no place we found felt like it had the kind of character that we were looking for. Until we got up, I mean, I knew the I knew the school because I'd been teaching up there uh, in the past, and they have a beautiful courtyard, and it just oozes character in a city that can sometimes be challenged for you authenticity. know for authenticity or buildings or places that feel like they have a rich history, and we fell in love with the spot. Uh, it was actually it was quite an ordeal. You got to get on a waiting list. I mean, it took about a year to get the venue and they called up one day and this was really my wife uh, Nicole she really was aces on this they called up one day and she had been very proactive about staying after the city so the city owns the fifth street school right and they Mm -hmm. rent they rent the space out Uh, and they called up and they said well we got two dates we got uh, June 24th or June 10th and we thought oh my gosh June people are gonna like bake people are gonna People would die at this, at, this, at this wedding. It's outdoors in, in, in Las Vegas. And smartly, she said, give us June 10th. We'll, we'll, we'll roll the dice. And, and, and as, as you all know, like the heat in Vegas doesn't really kick in. I don't think it really kicks in until about the second week of June. Mm-hmm. Like you can catch Memorial Day. You'll get a couple of hints that it's coming. But Memorial Day to like first week or so of June, you might you might get away with it. And we got away with it. It was a beautiful. It was a little bit overcast, but it wasn't. It wasn't hot. We had fans. We had water. We were on standby, but we didn't end up needing any of it. It was a beautiful, uh, beautiful ceremony, beautiful venue, and a beautiful building. Uh, and so, you know, really, I guess maybe to close, one of the things that continues to fascinate me about Las Vegas and about writing about cities and, and thinking about cities in this city is we have all of these 
We have places that other cities are desperately trying to create, places of spectacle, right? Like we literally have the lion's share. Uh, we have the market cornered on spectacle. Now it's a question for us, can we make more places like the Fifth Street School? Like if we can imagine like 20 more places. I mean, they don't have to be Mission Revival, 1936 era, you know, schoolhouses, but but places where you're there and you just, you feel something. You know, you don't feel like, oh, this is just another generic kind of, you know, blah, blah, blah. You feel, oh, this place has got quality. This place is special. Imagine if we could build or train a generation of of designers here or train a generation of, of writers and journalists to sort of push for that. Uh, imagine what kind of city we could we could make. That would be pretty awesome, I think. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, is there anything that we should have asked you that we haven't asked you? Not at all. <laughs> no, I, I think you guys. Uh, I think you guys well, covered it. I, you know, tell us a little bit. Um, you know, we've talked about kind of your your career and everything else, and your teaching philosophy and all that you're doing. Um, but we really haven't talked about kind of what uh, what TR what you enjoy when you're not writing what what do you do as an escape uh photography has become over the years a big sort of escape for me uh i'm not a professional photographer i I mean and there are there are implications for photography in the work that i do and so maybe i'm never that far away from work kind of stuff but when i'm out and about I, i mean Drop me in a city I've never been in with a camera in my hand and no agenda for the day, and that's that's about, you know. It's heaven. That's about as good as it gets, you know, hanging out with my wife, just walking around anywhere, any city uh, in the U.S., abroad, and just sort of taking pictures. Uh, for me, it's not even really about the quality of the picture. The The, the picture is almost kind of an afterthought. It's just... The process is sort of being in the flow of the day. Uh, it's a chance to kind of meet people, see things, you know. I mean, what's so great about what we do is that, like, we get paid to go talk to people, go talk to strangers, go see things. And so even when I'm kind of off the clock, I still enjoy that. Let me just grab a camera and just just go. You know, and go see something that I might not have gone or walk down someplace that, that if I didn't have the camera with me, I might not have or go up to somebody and I might not have bothered if I didn't have the camera with me. So, I mean, I'm a pretty introverted guy. Uh, and so the camera also is a way that brings me out of that a little bit. You know, it can be it can be sort of a conduit to connect you to something else or someone else. Uh, so that's that's a great. I mean, I hike, I play tennis. You know, uh, I love those those activities too. But you know, put me in put me in a town, like I said, with a camera and and no map, uh, and just in the day to just go wherever. Uh, those are those are the best days. What's the most iconic place you've discovered? City or landscape? Either one. Uh, can I give you? I'll. I'll answer both. Uh, most iconic landscape, boy, that's a tough one. Living out in the West, we're just we're just spoiled. 
Uh, and I've seen some stuff in, in, in other places that have been pretty cool. But I, I'll i say the first time I drove into Yosemite Valley was pretty – that was pretty – awe-inspiring i mean the grand canyon too but but i'll but I'll, I'll i'll go with yosemite there was just something where you really felt like you had entered you know those like the land before time those somebody falls down like a portal or something they enter some like forgotten edenic kind of kind of world that was seeing yosemite for the first time uh city wise uh you know we took our uh, my wife and i took our honeymoon in uh portugal and so Certain cities, cities, certain cities just have a have an allure for me. Maybe I'd never been there. Uh, Mexico City, I'd never been, but I'd always wanted to go. It was an amazing place to go. New York is great, but Lisbon and Porto uh, in Portugal, uh, there's something about those places that just uh, just felt like home. Uh, just you know. Uh, really exciting. I will say, uh, I will also say, uh, maybe the most alien place I'd ever been in, the most unusual place I'd ever been in was Cairo, uh, which felt like, I thought New York was kind of the standard of the big, bad, you know. Cairo was sort of like like a next level kind of proposition. Just, you know, crazy, alive, alive alive in a way that I had never experienced in, in any city, uh, just teeming with life. And I was there just a couple of years before Tahrir Square and, and the Arab Spring and, and all of that. Uh, that was a really uh, magical, magical place. Well, it's been great chatting with you about these things. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, thank you for letting me uh, come in and uh, 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 talk with you guys. I really, really enjoyed this. The pleasure was ours, TR. Thank you. We appreciate it. You bet. You bet.